Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in our never-ending journey through the Gospels, it seems like. This is Gospels <laughs> Part 18. Uh, in the previous episode, we delved into the interactions between Nicodemus and Jesus, and uh, even though Nicodemus was someone who was very respected among the Jewish scholarly world, he was really struggling when Jesus was telling him that you had to be born of water and the Spirit and what it means for the Son of Man to be lifted up like a serpent uh, to gain eternal life and this aspect of a spiritual birth. And now we are about to start our conversation today with could be arguably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. Well, you got that right. Sporting so, events, street corners, you name it, it's everywhere, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anything yeah. you need to bring up before we go into it? No, just you talking about it. That Nicodemus story, you know, I, I feel like we probably have presented a different interpretation than maybe most people would have, a uh, little outside the box, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but boy, that was, it's, it's good. And it's, it's uh, leading us to so many important parts of the story. So I don't know. That's exciting. But yeah, we're picking up at John three sixteen, and I'm ready when you are. All right. Just remember, we got a PDF on the presentation page in the show notes, so just check it out for your reference. All right, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, as important as this verse is, I got to ask this weird sort of question from out of nowhere. Do we really think that this is still the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus at night? Is that really what's going on here? Or has John broken out of that? And is he now providing his own commentary? John the writer, okay? What do you think, Samuel? I know what I think. I mean, it. I know that verse... 14 and 15 and 16 are similar to one another, but it tonally, if you're considering it to be a conversation, it, it seems like this huge run-on series of statements that uh, Jesus is saying right here, if it's to be a continuation of the previous conversation. So I'm kind of leaning towards it being a separation, but I don't. I know that I can't say definitively one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. See, people argue about it. You know, is this really all supposed to still be red letter? Is it really Jesus talking? A lot of people try to draw the line here at verse 16. And to your point, I think it's, we, we might even question, should we should we draw the line sooner or possibly later? What There are all kinds of arguments. All I can say is, for me, by the time I get here, I just, I can't imagine this is the conversation continuing. This is the part where I just finally have to go, okay, I can't take any more. I've got to say John has broken in, and he's telling his own story. Now, now, what we're going to see from this point forward, though, is also kind of important. 
John is highlighting some of the themes that already came from the Nicodemus narrative. You remember Nicodemus, it was dark when they met, right? Well, John's now going to focus on light. We had this idea of a Savior being lifted up, and, and what did it do? It saved from certain death, right? We had the bronze serpent, but then we had, of course, Messiah. Um, this whole idea of uh, birth and life and death, we, we talked about through baptism and, and that stuff. So the thing is that once we get here, and, and maybe even sooner, but it seems so mature, in at least in terms of the, the content and, and the story details. It, it just feels like somebody who has, has lived through a whole bunch more of the story coming back and, and like filling in some info. At, at least that's the way it feels to me. I just don't buy it that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. But you can imagine, so you got John, years and years and years later, he's recollecting this story and he's trying to write it down and he's trying to write it in a way that's really infusing not just the story, but the meaning that he wants in it. And while he's doing it, he's he's getting to the end and it, it's it's actually moving him. He's remembering, he's getting moved, and now he's just going to start proclaiming some things, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only, uh, gave his only son. Uh, anyway, I, that's the way I see it. So whether you agree or not, doesn't matter. Let's start looking at the actual text, because that's what we do, right? So number one, God so loved. This word loved, okay, comes from the Greek, Greek word agape. Everybody loves that one, because what do they say it means, Samuel? It's that unconditional type of love. Unconditional, yeah. And, okay, that definitely is what it means, but sometimes I think we we get almost a little too hung up on that. We'll talk about that later as we work through text elsewhere. But here I just want to point out, if we were going to take this word, agape, take it back to what we think would be the likely Hebrew, as these are Hebrew people with Hebrew thinking, okay? It would be something more like a cherished lover. God so loved the world. Huh? That's kind of a cool picture too, right? Yeah. But anyway, uh, the world, uh, just notice the universal scope. It's for everybody. And then it says that he gave his only son. Now, I think a lot of times when we see that, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but, but we think of it kind of like a gift. God gave a gift, and it was his son. But I think there's a different sort of aspect of that word, and, and, and I think it tells us a lot. It, you might think of it more like to grant, or to allow, or to surrender something. And that's very different from just giving a gift because it's costing something. You, you know what I'm saying? Giving a Definitely. gift. Yeah, it kind of makes you feel good or, yeah, I don't know, you feel like you're, whatever. God surrendered his only son. That's a, that's a different picture. I love that. Uh, but we have this phrase. I feel like we've talked about it before in the podcast. All my days get mixed up, so who knows, whatever. But this idea of the only son, that uh, a lot of people, uh, you may have something like only begotten son or whatever in your translation. Okay, 
This isn't attempting to say that God only has one single offspring that is his son. And, and like, for example, Israel in Scripture is called God's son. There are more places. So, so it's not identifying as literally the only one. It's more like identifying Jesus as the one unique son, the one that's the spitting image of his father. There, there, there's none of his other sons were quite like him. You kind of see where I'm getting? Yeah. 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 Isn't there a Midrash that talks about that begotten nature between Abraham and Isaac? Oh, yeah. I'm sure more than one. Yeah. The, the, uh, the one that I'm familiar with. Do you want to tell the story? Well, I just know that there's a Midrash that talks about when Isaac became closer to an adult age that people in public had to like ask him certain clarifying questions to confirm that it was actually Isaac because he looked identically to Abraham. Yeah, yeah. They were so alike that people were always confusing father and son. They didn't know which was which. And that, that is a great image because that's Jesus and the Father, right? Oh, yeah. I love it. Hey, uh, real quick, why don't you read, because uh, this is interesting also, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Why don't you read that? Yeah. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. What? Wait a second. Did Abraham only have a single son? No, he did not. Oh, name another. Uh, Ishmael. Yeah, and just just let's push this a little further. Who was born first? Ishmael was. Yeah. So this idea of the only son is something that it's it's uh, recurring throughout your scriptures, and it's talking about the one who is so much like his father. So, yeah, it's a great picture. Uh, what else we got? Oh, yeah, so he gave his only son that whoever believes, once again, it's it sounds very universal in its scope, doesn't it, Samuel? It does. Now, are we promoting universalism? Absolutely not. No, no. We're just noting, hey... This was for the world. He loved the world. It's whoever believes. And, and this, this idea of believe, it's not just mental assent. Have we ever said that before, Samuel? I think at least once. Yeah, I think we'll say it again. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, it's not. It's trust accompanied by appropriate action. It's faith and faithfulness. This belief leads to faithful obedience. And if you're not buying it, just wait. As we continue down, verse 36 is going to be a really good one. Uh, You're just going to see this worked out in the scriptures. It's a real thing. But whoever believes should not perish. Now, uh, this word perish, uh, okay, so there's uh, more than one meaning, I guess, but both the Greek and again, if we can, you know, look for the likely Hebrew, both of them speak of destruction. I think that's an important point. 
And also notice that this perishing or the destruction, it's set in contrast to what? Life. Yes, eternal life. Now, this may become relevant. As we continue through, we're going to have discussions. I'm sure it's going to come up, things that have to do with our final destinies, right? That's a discussion for another day. But notice, you shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. So perishing is set in contrast to eternal life, and perishing is destruction. I'm just saying. Uh, another thing, this eternal life. Now, now to be clear, when, when this says eternal life, I think that it's talking about, you know, what we would think of as eternity or infinity or whatever, life that it's without end, okay? However, I just want to point out, since we're seeing this word here, when we talk about things being eternal or when we see the word eternity or everlasting or whatever, be careful. Because sometimes we're only talking about an age, a specific age. And, and well, what do you mean by an age? Well, this relates to the concept of uh, like this world. So, so the, the earth that we're on, the one that's been around for, I don't know, somewhere from 6,000 to 2 billion years, I don't know what the estimates are, whatever, <laughs> take your pick, that world is an age, this world, it's an age. But you know how in Revelation, Samuel, it says, what's going to happen to this world? It's going to pass away. Yeah. And then what's going to happen? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Yes, and when that happens, that is a new age. So sometimes when you see the word eternal or eternity or everlasting or whatever, we're just talking about to the end of the current age. And then a new age brings a new thing. I'm just still saying, though, in this case, I think this, this spans ages. It transcends ages Ages in this case. I'm going to go full-on nerd here, but if there's, yes. any, if there's any Lord of the Rings fans out there, there's different ages in that universe. There's like the third age, which the trilogy is set in. You know, that's, that's the age that has elves and dwarves and men. And then after the end of the third book, it starts the beginning of the fourth age, which is the age that is primarily ruled by men in Middle-earth. So, yeah. I don't know. That's kind of a good comparison. <laughs> yeah. And do you think when Tolkien wrote it that he had this kind of thing in mind? Well, I know that he was good friends with C.S. Lewis, and they had lots of discourse about life and spirituality and God, so probably. Yeah. We'll never know. But it's a great question, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to throw in just something else on this verse before we move on. Um, yeah. I had read a previous translation that focused on the word so, and for God so loved the world. And mm -hmm. if you look at the underlying Greek, I know that we, within the English language, we emphasize that for God so loved the world. But if you look at the Greek, that that Greek word actually means like the manner in which or in this way. And the alternate ah. translation that I had read described it like this, for God loved the world in this way. And then they, they gave a colon. 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So I always just thought that was a real refreshing take on this verse to say that, like, this is the manner in which God loved the world and humanity, that he would, you know, give himself through his son uh, for for life's sake. See, that's so good, because I know when I read it at, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, I read it the other way. For God so loved the world, right? Mm-hmm. But actually, having said all of the things that we have just said, I feel like we've we've tried to uh, enrich this verse a little bit, right? We should go back and 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 having all of this thing in our head now, just real quickly. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And if while I'm reading that, or while you're reading that later in the future, if you remember all of these little piece parts, that is one big, fat, powerful statement right there. Mm-hmm. It's good. Yeah. All right. The next, the next verse is going to be just as good. <laughs> well, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, let's do it. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay. So, number one, remember the context culturally. They're kind of expecting a king. They want this king to rule over all. And so, if that were to happen, if this you know, geopolitical sort of reality had come to pass, all nations would be under his rule. And so that leads us to this idea of judgment, condemnation, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But this word condemn, number number one, we just recognize it's talking about passing judgment. We may not recognize this, and maybe we should look at it just to make sure we see it. There's a parallelism between verse 16 and 17. The word condemn is is like the parallel of the word perish from verse 16. The word saved is like the parallel of the word life or eternal life from verse 16, okay? It's important that we see that just textually. This is It's something that John is doing on purpose, supposedly for our benefit. So we need to notice it. So this, he didn't send him in the world to condemn, and that is, he didn't send him uh, to pass judgment, right? There will be no perishing, if you will. And, And we look at this and we go, that's because the judgment, the big judgment, that comes later. And, and we can think of that as his second coming, the second resurrection, if you see those as one thing or two things, whatever, judgment is involved there. And it's it's always about that idea of guilt or innocence. God didn't send his son, Jesus, this first time, 2,000 years ago. The point of it was not for judgment. It was that the world might be saved. And so to be saved, I got to ask this question, Samuel, saved from what? What comes to mind is saved from eternal death (laughs) yeah most people don't think about that or they've got an idea well they saved me you know because i had sin and uh, you know that got forgiven or whatever 
to take it back to its most basic in the story is to say that you are saved from death. And that's why, again, you see that parallel. Perishing, condemnation, uh, eternal life, saved, those, those parallels really tell the story. And here's, what it, here's how it works out. The world might be saved through him. What are we talking about? This is the definition of the word grace. Mm-hmm. What? A lot of people don't think of it that way. Grace is the idea. Well, okay, let's ask this. Samuel, what is the common definition of grace? What would people say? Catchy phrase. People usually say it's unmerited favor from God. Yes. Like you didn't deserve it, but God gave it to you anyway. Yeah. Getting what you don't deserve, not getting what you do deserve. Yeah. Unmerited favor. Okay. Here's the problem. That's either not true or at best only half true. Jesus accrues overflowing, abundant merit with God through his sinless life, through his unwarranted suffering, through his unwarranted death, all of it. Jesus accrues all of this merit with God. And then God, in his mercy, is willing to apply that to us and our shortcomings. This is the picture of grace. So, to say that it wasn't merited isn't right. It was merited. It's just that it wasn't merited by you or me, right? That's the point. So, it's in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the picture of grace. And this is something that we've seen all across the Hebrew Scriptures with the patriarchal figures in the biblical story, correct? I mean, we have figures that... Um, because of their merit, others were benefited or benefactors of that person's life. You know, Abraham was Sodom and Gomorrah. God was going to allow them to be saved based on his merit with pleading before God. Moses, like in his merit, uh, David, like, I mean, you can insert so many figures. Yeah, Noah and his family. Yeah. 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 People forget that too. God called Noah righteous. Didn't say anything about his family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they were saved. Right? Noah's merit. So, yeah. Good picture. All right. Uh, where are we at? Verse 18? Yep. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay. Surprisingly, I'm going to repeat myself. This belief, it's not mere mental assent. It's trust accompanied by appropriate action. It is faith and faithfulness. Picking up on the recurring theme here, Samuel? (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever believes is not condemned. And that would be judged with a guilty verdict, right? We could think of it that way. But then listen to this. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. What, uh, 
I mean, it's like it's it's almost like that makes sense and doesn't make sense all at the same time. You're not quite sure what he's getting at there. So let's say it this way: Whoever does not believe is condemned currently, meaning if you're not believing, you have been condemned all along, and you are continuing in that. You 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 have been living under a death sentence. And nothing is changing for you. Whoever does not believe, eh, you're condemned already. You always have been, and you still are. Does that kind of make that make a little more sense for you? Yeah, and I think it get people might be taking that with a perception of its um, maliciousness or whatever. But I, I think if we go back to that dichotomy, that parallelism between life and death, I think it's just the label in which your reality is living under, like, you know, are you living under a promise that's going to result in life and life everlasting, or are you living under a banner that is going to result in that life being ended, you know, when the judgment comes? Uh, that that just seems more a matter-of-fact type of reality and truth rather than it's this, like, you know, God smiting, you know, magnifying yeah. glass on top of an anthill kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's 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 kind of like saying, look, everybody's in the same state. You're headed for death. You have no hope. But something has changed. God has provided something. And for those who are willing to believe, you can change your state. There's something else available for you. But if you don't believe... Okay, your state is going to remain unchanged. You're just headed for death. Yeah, as we've said in previous episodes, God has made a way or prepared the way. Yes. This is the way. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to catch up. Yeah, and, and then uh, he finishes with, uh, because he has not believed in the name, believed in the name. Remember from uh, John, we were in chapter one, uh, uh I wrote that down. I've got John 1, 12. It's that idea of trusting that what God has said, he will do. That's what we were talking about back in John 1. Now, here, we could say that God has, in fact, done it because he's accomplished it through his Messiah. But now we're talking about believing in the name of the only Son of God. And so that same believing in the name, that trusting that God what he has said he will do, uh, we can also look at the Son, the Messiah, Jesus, the same way, trusting that what he has said he will do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great picture. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then, oh, ooh, this is a toughie. <laughs> Verse 19. <laughs> so, so he's been talking a little bit about condemnation, and he switches his word here. He goes to judgment. That's why I was sort of bringing it up before we got there, right? Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Now, I'm I'm just going to admit there's more than one way to take that right there, that sentence. But here's the way I'm going to try to re-state uh, it, if I could. 
This is the judgment. Their works were evil, and they would not cease doing them. And this proves that the people loved the darkness more than the light. Even though the light has actually come to them, like as in literally, in Messiah. I think that what John is trying to get across here is this idea that, you know, and and it's just continuing with the things that he's already said. It requires something of you, not just happening in between your ears and your brain. It requires you to actually change the way that you live, thoughts, actions, words, all of it. That is coming into the light. But the people love darkness more, and so they refuse to change. And I hate to say it, but it comes across sometimes for some people, even in theology and doctrine, in things like, God got rid of the law. I, I live under grace, not under law, I, right? Those kind of things. Now, sometimes it's just because that's what they've been told and they're just going along. But I think for some, it's an actual resistance, a rebellion to what we actually see in the Scripture. Uh, take that any way you will. Yeah, even in the beginning of John, the very first chapter, when we went through that in verse 9, like it kind of gives the um, the reality of what that light is meant to do. And then this verse kind of shows what happens with humanity. In verse 9, it says, yeah. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. And so, I don't know, that's kind of like... Um, what was the ideal thing to happen, but then humanity and their response didn't yeah. live up to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's no point in us being shy about it because we're going to say it a bazillion times, um, but it, it's just, it's another way where we see that being a Christian, a true disciple of Christ, is a high calling. And we're going to touch on it more and more and more. It isn't about perfection, and it isn't about judging people based on how well they do or whatever. We're going to talk about that. But it just the basic fact of, look, you can't just, you know, say it in your mind and that's the end of the story. It, it's, it is a lifestyle. It is a walk. This is a big deal. I did want to point out that, um, you know, for whatever it's worth, because we're now talking about light, uh, this in a way sort of harkens back to the Nicodemus narrative. Remember, he was meeting at night in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Uh, and you brought up light and dark of chapter one. John, he likes this theme. He likes light versus dark. Uh, so we just need to keep our eyes peeled for that. But let's see what else we got. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's another one of those parallels. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Everyone who does what is true comes to the light. So wicked things are being contrasted with true. 
things, if you want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Just interesting things to see operating in truth, falsehood. And, and I mean, the important thing is God is what is true, and so that's obviously the thing we have to pursue. Anyway, so it kind of seems like a simple formula, right? Anyone who continues in, well, let's call it sin, does wicked things. Anyone who continues in sin hates and avoids the light. Why? Well, risking exposure. Exposure of what? The fact that they're not faithful. They're not in agreement with God, if you will. Anyone who repents, meaning turns from whatever it is they're doing to do exactly what God is calling us to do, his expressed will, Torah, law, Holy Spirit, whatever, Jesus's words, the New Testament, all of it. Anyone who repents and pursues righteous living, that is doing what is true, gladly seeks the light so that their works may be seen because they're godly. You are salt. You are light in the world. So you, you want it to be exposed. You want it to be out there because it's actually our role. It's our role. See, people love to say, salvation is not based on works. Well, that's true. Well, how about our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to him? Also true. It's Okay, side note, Samuel, King James Version, Isaiah 64, 6. I just love this. It says that it's all our righteousnesses <laughs> are as filthy rags, which I love that. All of our righteous deeds, all of our righteous works are as filthy rags, but it's a little bit of a tongue twister, but that's so great. But anyway, salvation is not based on works. True. Filthy rags. True. But this is an excuse. It's not an excuse for bad behavior. You have responsibility in this thing. If your thoughts, your words, your actions do not line up with God's expressed will, which pretty much is your belief, your faith then there's something wrong with your belief or your faith. There just is. Yeah, and I would, I would even say that with you had said uh, it's not an excuse for any kind of bad behavior. It's also not an excuse for inaction or for slothfulness with... Yes, uh, lack do, of good behavior. Doing good things. Uh, right. Because I think that people take that righteousness as filthy rags too far, and then it undermines the reality and truth that we are the pinnacle of God's creation and God has declared us good. And that while we're broken, of course, God in his story continues to tell humanity, like I've given you everything that you need in order to walk with me. Um, and now I'm inviting you to choose to partner with me. And now in the present, we have the spirit to help us with that. So, I don't know. That's the thing that I need to constantly remind myself that I'm not a bad creation. I'm a good creation that's broken, but God is inviting me to step out in faith and do the things, do the good things he he wants. Yes, you are capable of righteous living, righteous works. Okay, you're probably not going to be Jesus. I get that, but that's not a reason not to do it. And then this is another point. So this this whole righteous living thing that we're talking about, Samuel, is this something that happens to us 
you know, is it like an immediate change or is this an ongoing process? <laughs> it depends on who you ask. I I would personally say that it's a process, but, you know, a lot of people, depending on what circle you're in, they just kind of sit there and stand there saying like, you know, nothing's going to happen unless God does it for me because I'm so incapable because of how sinful and awful I am. But I, yeah. I don't I don't see it that way. I think yeah. that it's it's a process that we learn through wisdom and truth that God discloses to the world. Yeah. Yeah. God isn't looking at us through Jesus glasses so that no matter what horrible, awful things we do, he's just saying, oh, isn't he sweet? What a great <laughs> little child of mine. No, stop thinking that way. It's an ongoing process and, and it's lifelong. And you know what? Some people are going to do great and some people are going to do not so great, whatever. It's not about the outcome. Or let me, let me rephrase that. It's not... It's not as if we have to attain some level of perfection. That's not what it's about. It's about being loyal and faithful. So, like, like for example, Samuel, some people, they're just going to struggle. And let's just say somebody struggles with alcohol. They like it. And they get around it. They taste it, whatever. They, they really, really struggle. I don't have that issue. I don't even like to taste it, but that doesn't make me better than them, and I need to be patient with that person in that thing. Now, it doesn't mean that they can just, well, it's how I'm built. I guess I'll just get drunk again. No, you can't do that, but I still have to be patient, understanding that their difficulty is very different from mine. We have to be patient in the other people's walks, and at the same time, somehow figuring out how we can never really tolerate willful disobedience without some sort of rebuke, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we have a responsibility to one another to say, man, I'm seeing this thing in your life, and and not hearsay, (laughs) but I'm actually seeing it. I need to tell you, I think you're missing the boat. I think, I think God wants something better or different, and, and, and you need to, you know, stop, check yourself, and, and think about possibly change, right? It's a, it's a real balancing act. It, this is hard stuff relationally, but we can't ignore it. So we have to be patient and willing to, you know, speak truth to one another. Now, this, I rarely do this, but there, I, there's a statement. I've written it down because this is the essence of what I'm trying to say. And, and I feel like every once in a while, you, you, you state something in a certain way and it, it's like, man, that is exactly what I meant to say, right? So I did that first time on the podcast. <laughs> Here it is. We must... Each of us, we must pursue righteousness to such a degree that even in our failure, our loyalty to him remains undeniable. Do you feel it, Samuel? Is that capturing what we've been saying the last few minutes here? Yeah. I'm just ready for you to keep going to see what's around the corner. (laughs) That was it. That's the no. 
<laughs> yeah, th- but it's it's that thing of saying, look, uh, God, he's looking at the heart. He's going to recognize the loyalty. It's not about checking off boxes and who's doing better than the next guy and all that kind of stuff. But how else, how else do you distinguish the sheep from the goats? I mean, if it's all just a matter of people going in their brain, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, you've known people like that. You've known people that say they believe and their lives are a mess. And I don't mean a mess like they're not doing well in living righteously, but more like uh, there's no effort to live righteously at all. This is more like a social club, not an actual lifestyle, right? How do you distinguish from the sheep and the goats? And just for reference, Samuel, we're talking about Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And similarly, how do you distinguish between the wheat and the chaff? That comes from Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It has to come across in our loyalty to him, our pursuit of righteousness. It isn't so dependent on our success but it's dependent on our effort, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We're, we're his body. We're the ones on the earth who are supposed to be bringing the mercy and the love and the justice here in the earth. We're the way that they actually can see God. And if we're not doing it, then we're not the sheep. We're not the wheat. We're the goats and the chaff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to slow us down anymore uh, with things that have come to mind, but um, you had said you'd given that example about someone struggling with alcohol and how someone may not be in the same boat. Yeah, I know that you and I were talking about this in a different group that we're in. There's an aspect of God's wisdom that we cannot comprehend, and Job is a good example of that. Like, God does not give Job an answer as to why he suffered, and in our lives, there are certain burdens and things that we are more prone to struggling with that we probably will never be able to understand why that is the thing. But then at the same time, I'm connecting that with the Cain and Abel story. Um, I know that the Midrash says that Cain, there was nothing actually wrong with the quality of the sacrifice that Cain, I know one Midrash says that the quality of the of his sacrifice there's, there wasn't anything wrong with it. God just preferred uh, Abel's sacrifice in that particular moment. And the crux of that story is God telling Cain, like, if you, right now, like, why are you downcast and why are you upset about this? If you if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So it, it's it's that invitation that despite the our uh, limited faculties within our own human agencies to understand the transcendent nature of God's wisdom and why he operates the world that he does, we're still given that invitation to choose the right thing, um, to choose to persevere within the struggle, um, you know, the sin habit that we're prone to or whatever. The invitation still stands regardless of what the burden or the, the boulder is that is on each of our shoulders in life. Yeah. Oh, that is such a great image. And so early in the story, if you do what is right or good, will you not be accepted? It's it's such a simple formula. It's all God's asking. He's trying to take us 
everything was as it should be, and then the garden story, and now it's not. And God is returning us back to a place when everything is as it should be. And we, in this broken or corrupted or messed up state, whatever it is, we're just partnering with him, joining with him in this idea of pursuing things as they should be. That's all. It it doesn't have to be a big theological argument. It's just simple. Yeah. That's who we are. Yeah. Yeah, Marty Solomon in the Bema Discipleship Podcast has a really good episode on the Cain and Abel story. Maybe we'll throw it down in the show notes for this episode. Uh, you should yeah. definitely check it out. He he talks about it in a really cool way. Yeah. Ugh. This is good stuff. I feel like time's flying, but that's yeah. all right. Let's keep going. <laughs> uh, verse 22. Now, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them. And was baptizing. Whoa. The Judean countryside. Now, first of all, that's pretty broad. We have no idea what he's talking about, right? Um, But for whatever reason, there are a lot of scholars. They kind of think this is over on the west side of the Jordan. So still out in that area. Um, For what it's worth, uh, we've kind of lost view of this. So I thought maybe we should just say it out loud. Pretty much seems like, you know, Jesus's mom and, you know, siblings, they're all out of the picture now. That's not a part of anything that we're talking about. But this is interesting. I hope I'm right. As far as I can tell, this is the only mention in all of the Gospels, or in fact, I believe all of the New Testament. This is the only mention of Jesus baptizing anyone. Now, special point about that, as it turns out, John himself... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the guy writing right here, he's going to later clarify that it wasn't actually Jesus doing the baptizing. It was his disciples. That's down in John chapter four. But for whatever reason, whatever it is they're doing, they seem to be following John's example, at least in some way. And remember, some of some of Jesus' disciples, <clears throat> let's try that one again. <laughs> remember, some of Jesus' disciples actually started out as John's disciples. Yeah. So, you know, it would make sense that they're just trying to do what they know, right? And just real quick, uh, listeners, keep it in your mind with what we've said in the previous episodes that baptism in a first century Jewish context isn't the 21st century Western version that we see in evangelical churches today. The the one quote-unquote baptizing is more of a supervisor, but each individual person is baptizing. They're immersing themselves. Yeah. So just yeah. just keep that in mind as we're talking about this these verses. Yeah, yeah, good point. So, okay, so here we have, at least so far, we've got Jesus and his disciples, and they're baptizing. Uh, verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. <laughs> now, what? this He's gets... spoiling the story. <laughs> yeah. But actually, it's confusing the story. Uh, l- l- there's a couple of things here. First of all, the text is kind of ambiguous. And so we're not even sure. Okay. Is John saying um, that John the Baptist was also baptizing like at the same time that Jesus was baptizing? 
Or is he actually going further and trying to to give us the image that that John was also baptizing at a known, like not just at the same time, but same time and same place? Now, we're not really sure. I don't even know if it really matters, but it, it does, if it's them at the same time in the same place, it at least makes more sense with what's about to follow. But we don't know. The, the other Gospels, and here's the part that's really confusing, the other Gospels seem to present the story more like Jesus starts his ministry after John the Baptist is imprisoned. But right here, John the writer is saying that Jesus is baptizing along with John the Baptist and John had not yet been put in prison. So here's John the writer. He's offering this different view. Remember how we've had, we've had stories that are out of place? And I don't know. There's so much about John's gospel that is just way outside the box of the other three. And so it makes it difficult for us as readers to to really try to piece all this together. And at the same time, it provides us with all kinds of rich extra information. So what do you call that? Uh, Blessing and a curse? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But for what it's worth, we're going to talk more about John the Baptist and his imprisonment and all that stuff as we continue through the Gospels. We're not going to deal with it here because there's really no other information here. But anyway, uh, where are we at? Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Uh, okay, um, I can't tell if like this is supposed to be connected with what he just wrote, or if we're switching topics or whatever. This is this is odd. But first of all, this Greek word discussion, or you know, that gets translated as discussion. Okay, it's pretty much a dispute. So uh, it may be nice and friendly, but there's there's real disagreement here, okay? And then <laughs> we've got John's disciples and sort of this mysterious anonymous Jew. Uh, who is this guy? Did he come down just because he wanted to dispute with them? Or, I mean, you know, what? <laughs> I don't know what the story is. Now, um, there are some, and and I mean, there's something to be said about this. There are some who suggests that it's John the writer who is this anonymous Jew. You know how he's kind of hidden behind words like that before? Yeah. And and so it could be. And if that were the case, if they were both in the same area at the same time, that would have made, you know, some more sense or whatever. We don't really know. But I just thought that was interesting that people think that. But the dispute, for whatever reason, it's about purification, and in some way, this has to relate to whatever it is Jesus and his disciples are doing, you know, versus what John and his disciples are, are doing. So before we, we get to the next verses, I thought it would be kind of fun to come up with some questions. Like, like, what could this dispute possibly be over? And so you might think about things like, well, okay, if John is the one who baptized Jesus... Well, doesn't that make John's baptism greater? You could say that. Or, here's another one. Why does John continue baptizing if Jesus' baptism is greater? Which is kind of the story that John's going to tell as we go, right? 
Here's another question. Did they need both baptisms? Was there some something good and special about both and you should should have got both? Or maybe the opposite of that, well, if both of the baptisms are for basically the same thing, why are they both doing it? Well, what's really going on? Now, I'm sure people could come up with a whole bunch of more questions, probably better than mine. But so far, we just don't really know. But here's, just to kind of recall, what was John's baptism for, Samuel? It was for repentance. Yeah, it was a baptism for repentance. And, you know, that catchy phrase, it was the outward symbol of an inner change. Now, if the later stories, the later examples that we have are in any way relevant, and I don't know that they are, well, what we see when we're talking about baptism in Jesus later, it's always about being baptized into his name. And for what it's worth, that's kind of like, you know, uh, saying, I declare that he is my teacher, or I declare that I am his disciple, or, or maybe even something stronger, like I belong to him. That's, that's kind of what being baptized into someone's name would be about. And so, in that sense, we might think that the baptisms are different, and then still that question, well, you know, did you need both? Is there, is there a reason for one to continue? Or you know, I'm, all those kind of things. But those are the things that we think we might know, but you got to hold on to them loosely. Um, and just one other point, you know how in the book of John, we sort of struggle when he talks about Jews or or that kind of thing. And what's John saying? Is he, is he, you know, he himself being anti-Semitic? Are we supposed to take that sort of a reading away? And we're saying, no, you're not. Well, for what it's worth, when he says that they're arguing with a Jew, it's the same word that was used in verse 22 that got translated as Judean. They went into the Judean countryside. So you could come back and say, oh, uh, the John's disciples were arguing with a Judean over purification. Just because Jew's going to be an important word all through the book of John, I thought I better say something about it. Yeah. Anyway, the discussion arises, and it's not a discussion, it's a dispute, and let's see, they're going to tell us what it is. Uh, Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, (laughs) I don't want to pick on them too much, but it's kind of like them going, John, your baptism used to be the bomb diggity. (laughs) Now everybody's running over to this guy. What's going on? What does this mean? (laughs) Now, I don't know that there's anything more spiritual in there that we should notice, (laughs) Uh, but that's, that's kind of what they're asking. And then we have this from John. John answers. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So we can see John, and oh, this is such a great picture, John the Baptist He's helping his disciples regain their perspective. John understands that whatever 
is happening in his ministry, if John even thinks of it that way, whatever's happening, well, it's something that originated with God. Therefore, God's the one who defines the beginning and the end of that ministry. Boy, are there a lot of people, Christians in this world today, who need to hear that message. Yeah, most definitely. God's the one who defines the beginning and the end. John, he's content with that. And he's encouraging his disciples to be content with it also. And, you know, for what it's worth, John, again, he's reminding them, and certainly us reading the story, John the Baptist, he's not the Christ. He was only to be making a way for him. And in a weird sort of way, I mean, just think about what he's saying. In saying that he is not the Christ, in some sense, he is still pointing to Jesus as the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I was sent before him. Him who? Him the Christ. Him Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's another example of John the Baptist making a pretty clear statement, and John the writer telling the story, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Just a, I don't know, really important thing to, to, to catch in John the Baptist's statement there. Yeah. <sighs> I got to say, this doesn't seem like the greatest place to end, <laughs> but we need to. We, okay. we, we certainly can't make any good progress outside of this. So anything more you'd like to add, Samuel? No, I think this has been a good episode and we've touched on a lot of things that hopefully can stir people in the best possible way about some verses that have been very common throughout their lifetimes and maybe bring some new light to them. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. It's good. And for what it's worth, John is going to continue his, John the Baptist is going to continue his conversation with his disciples when we come back. Uh, but still, this, it's, uh, we're going to stop it. So we're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.